HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today is, what I like to say, another another in my series of nostalgic, reminiscing kind of shows, um, and none other than some food from the 50s and 60s that Americans all know, and I think have all tried probably at one time or another, but backing up a little bit, at the end... I'd say the end of the 19th century, um, the first wave of um, Italian immigrants were beginning to settle in America. And they, the wives in particular, the housewives and the men who cooked too, were not finding the usual ingredients that they had at home to cook their dishes. So they sort of kind of had to put together and, and reinvent dishes with what they found and then start, and then lo and behold, started importing things from Italy to to create those dishes. Um, and of course, we all know the story of um, if you've seen the movie Big Night, you know the the excess of meats and and uh, abundance of natural ingredients, and spaghetti and meatballs was born. Uh, and certainly, there is a name that then became popular that many was many Americans' first introduction to Italian food. And that is Chef Boyardee. Now, unlike Betty Crocker or Aunt Jemima or so many of, of these other brands that um, took on personas, they weren't real people. But Chef Boyardee was definitely a real person. And I have with me in the studio uh, the, the main chef, Hector uh, Ettore um, Boyardee, and his name was Boyardee. Um, we'll get into all that as we talk to my guest and my guest here with me is the great niece of the head chef and partner granddaughter of his partner and brother her name is anna boyardi anna welcome 
Thank you so much for having me. That was kind of a convoluted introduction. I'm sorry, but I d- didn't want to give everything away in the introduction. But boy, Chef Boy RD, we all know. In fact, I, I uh, was telling some friends that the first time I ever made a pizza, probably at age, I don't know where I place it, age 10, 11, 12, something like that, was from a box mix of Chef Boy RD. And you know what? It wasn't half bad. I, I'd like to say that my pizza making has come a long way. <laughs> but for, you know, for someone growing up in, in the Midwest where we didn't have pizza parlors on every corner, this was a way to have, you know, and, and, there were, and we didn't have frozen pizzas then to just right. stick in the oven. This was a way to have a pizza right in your own home. And oh, it was yeah. wonderful. Yeah. But tell me how this all happened and how, how this all got started. Now, now the the main chef boyardee we see on all the, the picture on all the cans, that was your great uncle. That was right? my great uncle who founded Chef Boyardee in 1928 uh, with my grandfather, Mario, and their older brother, Paul. So there were three brothers that founded the company together. And all three brothers from the beginning had been immersed in the food world. So they had no formal education and all three of them, my great grandfather was actually a chef also in Italy. So all three of them, when they were eight years old, they, they were no longer educated and they started working. So in today's terms, that's very hard to even imagine going to work as an eight year old child. And they basically grew up in kitchens and started by taking out the garbage or peeling potatoes or really whatever they were allowed to be doing at that age. And as the three of them grew up, they all pursued work in the food world. So my Uncle Hector was an amazing chef, um, and he worked in restaurants and, and hotels throughout Italy and throughout Europe. And my, um, his older brother, Paul, my great uncle Paul, was he was the first one to come to the United States in the early 1900s, and he had started working in the Plaza Hotel, and eventually worked his way up to be maitre d', which, you know, in, at the time, you're talking about 1917, 18, mm. I mean, that there, that was a job that held a lot of cachet. A because lot of prestige. That was, a, that was a, a, quite a position to get. Right? That was quite a position to get. And then my, uh, so eventually my Uncle Hector came over. He was running the kitchen at the Plaza Hotel when he was 17 years old, hmm. um, which really speaks to the type of talent that he had. And my grandfather, who was the youngest, came over shortly thereafter and started working as a waiter at the plaza and then eventually worked his way also into the kitchen. So all three of them were really immersed uh, in the food world. And, um, you know, they weren't making just Italian food. They were make they knew how to make everything because at the time, Italian food in New York City was not what it is today. It was certainly not as chic. It was not as ubiquitous. It was probably considered, I would say, peasant food. Right. I mean, French French ruled. French I mean, ruled. French cuisine, right? Absolutely. Was, especially at the plaza. Of right. course. And all of the fine restaurants were French. And you would never see a female waitress. Absolutely right. not. Um, that meant it was a low-class mom-and-pop shop. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, which, you know, obviously the world we live in today is so different. But right. um, eventually my Uncle Hector, my Uncle Paul stayed at the plaza as a maitre d'. My Uncle Hector... Uh, received a job opportunity in Cleveland and moved to Cleveland and my grandfather followed and they they started opening restaurants and uh, customers, they were really introducing customers to Italian food. Mm -hmm. And at the time, people didn't even really know the proper way to cook pasta. So they would give their customers in the restaurant a little pasta 
uh, a little tomato sauce, a little Parmesan cheese, and explain to them how to cook it at home and how to you know put it everything together. And customers would always come back and say, "Oh my gosh, I did it at home, and I loved it, and I love the tomato sauce." And and they would give the, they would give them they would give them take yes. home package exactly they would give it. exactly. And then from that, they said, "Well, what about if we started?" selling our sauce and they started selling just their tomato sauce out of milk bottles in the restaurants so out of glass milk bottles they were mm. selling their tomato sauce and people loved it and kept coming back for more and it was just like this little idea of a little takeout portion of the restaurant and they thought well what about if we ex- is there a way to expand and sort of do you think that people outside of this area would also enjoy our products and how do we make that happen uh, and one time they had someone come through the restaurant that was delivering commodities and they said to them, you know, as you're going across the United States, if we give you some of our uh, sauce in milk bottles, could you just give it out to people and see if anyone would give you feedback and mm. and sort of created their own little test market. Yeah. So the truck driver was like, absolutely, sure, why not? So he, you know, went off with his milk bottles and, you know, a month later or so came back and said, I got great feedback. Everybody loved it. And I think you guys have something. So they thought, okay, well, now what's the next step? So the three brothers decided they're going to start this business of selling tomato sauce and canning it. And they pulled their resources and they founded what is now known as Chef Boyardee. But, mm-hmm. the, you know, then it was just uh, sauce. And So if it and works it in Cleveland, it'll work everywhere else. Right. right. Well, it, it, they Amazing. felt like, why not? Let's yeah. Let's try it and see what happens. And... Uh, by a stroke of luck, at the one of the customers at the Plaza Hotel was a, a gentleman named Mr. Hartford who owned all of the AMP supermarkets. Oh. So my uncle Paul went to him and said, "My brothers and I are thinking about starting this company, and would you test our products on your supermarket shelves?" And he said, "Absolutely," because he had known them for years. Uh-huh. He was familiar with their cooking, loved their food, and. He said, let's do it. Major stroke of luck. I Major mean, be, stroke of luck. <laughs> to yeah. be on the shelves of the A&P supermarkets uh, at that time, that was, you know. Right. At the time, the largest supermarket chain in the United that's States. That's right. And now we're talking 1928. 28. 28. Yeah. yeah. So that's still, as far as um, any bottled sauces or, or, you know, canned products, that's very early. Very early. Yeah. So they, it wasn't, you know, it was timing. It was having a good product, you know, being talented and then, uh, you know, and also just a little bit of luck also. And it was just like all of these pieces came together Hmm. and from the beginning, pretty much they had great success. Uh, So the, the restaurant, you said, um, that your uncle went and opened a restaurant Mm -hmm. in, in Cleveland. Um, and that stayed open all during that time that they were starting their product or yes. And then they, and then after they, what ended up happening was, is that he, they needed to grow so many tomatoes and they, you know, to keep up with their production. So Chef Boyardee actually started in Cleveland, but eventually they moved to Pennsylvania to a little town called Milton and which was sort of this struggling steel town. And they went in, they found space for a factory. They convinced uh, the farmers there who were growing primarily potatoes to switch their crops to tomatoes. And they started, they were producing, I mean, it was just, they needed like 30,000 tons of tomatoes. I mean, just a, wow, yeah. a massive amount of tomatoes. But that that, com- that factory eventually became sort of the economic backbone of the town hmm. and is still there today. Interesting. And not only that, but I mean, to, to even devise a factory that would yeah. produce 
something like a food product in mm-hmm. cans. And was it canned initially or it was bottled? Canned it initially. was canned initially. It was canned initially. And they, you know, it's, I it's, saw some old, some some uh, vintage photos of of some of the old cans. I couldn't get you know the permission to use some of them, but yeah, um, but. It hasn't changed. Didn't change a whole lot. I no, mean, it was it was similar. You know? It was very similar. And, it's, and, and you know, when you think about it in today's term, right? And you think about being eight years old, not going to school, just working, going straight into the workforce at eight, coming up with this idea. They never had to borrow money. The three of them, you know, just took every penny that they had and started this company. And just and even having not just not just in terms of food. They were all three just highly also intelligent. Mm-hmm. Men, Obviously, they right? they made it so, and they made it all on their own. So it's 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 just a, I always think it's just a great American success story. So the factory is still there in Milton, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Oh well, but then bring us up to date in today's uh, world, and that they sold. Well, first of all, they they got a big contract to produce even more once the war the right. world war ii came around right right so world war ii starts and the u.s government decides that they aside from the rations that they are already producing they wanted to come up with something that was more of like a typical american breakfast for their soldiers so they wanted to find a way to put a, some potatoes a slice of ham an egg in a can or in a ration and Eventually, they gave it to two companies first, and they couldn't come up with the formula. And the third um, opportunity came to Chef Boyardee, and my Uncle Hector, with a chalkboard, figured out the formula in 30 days' time. Hmm. And they got received the commission from the U.S. government to produce all of the rations for World War II. So at that time, the, the factory then converts from civilian production, which would be supermar- supermarket production, to wartime, to wartime production. And was running 24 hours a day hmm. and producing all of rations for American soldiers and also for Russia. And so it was just a huge undertaking um, for them. And, and also something that they were extremely proud to be a part of and to be doing because they felt that they came to the United States really looking for opportunity. And they had, been, they had received you know so much opportunity here, and they really wanted to give back, and they felt like this was an amazing way to give back. Not just a great opportunity for them, but they felt extremely proud to be part of um, helping. Well, and as you said, it became the backbone of that community. I mean, yeah. they, the numbers of people that they, that they employed for that factory, I'm sure, yeah. were you know, in the hundreds. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, what, um, tell me about the... Um, the name change. We know it as Chef Boyardee, right. <laughs> but the name was, is Boyardee, and it's right. it, it spelled differently, B-O-I-A-R-D-I. Right. So when they were coming up with the name, they said, well, they were, they were very proud of their name, and they wanted to keep their name, but they, you know, a lot of vowels tends to be confusing for Americans. No one could pronounce it right. <laughs> <laughs> so they felt like if no one is going to be able to pronounce the name, how are they going to remember it, and how are they going to ask for it? So it's the phonetic spelling that's on the can, which was done purposely just to make it easier to pronounce And, and that Americans. was brilliant because that whole... And, and the whole xenophobic kind of thing about buying something with a, you know, strange name attached to it. I mean, if you have it so simple as Boyardee, and then of course Madison Avenue took off on that, right? And they, the advertising that that uh, played up to that was brilliant. That was brilliant. It yeah. was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And who would have thought that there really is a person, Boyardee? And there yeah. you go. That was that is uh, pretty amazing and sound like amazing people to have have accomplished all that 
Um, so after World War II, uh, they continued, they really expanded their brand too. I mean, they, it wasn't just what was the first product? The, the sauce. The right? first product was the sauce. So they they had they had a tomato sauce. They had a mushroom sauce, and they had uh, like a spicier sauce, and that's how they started. And then eventually it went into spaghetti, um, and not not necessarily in a can. One was in a box, so you would get dried spaghetti, and then you'd have a little can of sauce and then a little can of Parmesan cheese. And when when they started Chef Boyardee, they were the largest importers of olive oil and parmesan cheese in the united states well you could not i mean it was not available anyway so <laughs> right. they're probably the only importers <laughs> so, and they were growing all their own mushrooms and their own tomatoes and um and you know what happened during you know during world war ii and, the, and thereafter is that it was also the right timing in history because suddenly you know during the war women had re-entered the workforce because mm. the men were fighting overseas right. and they needed food that was convenient and fast and, and relatively inexpensive. So it was also a great product and it fit all of those needs at that time. Uh, Post-World War II, they had to convert the factory back to civilian production and they, at the time they decided we've had so much success and their, their priority was to make sure that everyone around them was okay, so that everyone that had jobs would continue to have jobs and that the factory would continue to thrive. And they knew that they were going to need money for marketing, and they thought, what's the best way to do this and to expand? So what they did was is they sold the company to a company called American Home Products. And this and was... Um, this was like 1943, about. Mm. Uh so they sold the company for X amount of stock and, and X amount of, of cash, and they stayed on to consult. And that company, besides having a large uh, food segment, grew to be like one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the United States. Hmm. So that was just another huge windfall for them is that then this company that they became part of also became such a large corporation. Um, but they really stayed on. I mean, my, they stayed on for, you know, a few decades and still even my uncle Hector, you know, did, did commercials, you know, I was in a commercial when I was two. So it was like, (laughs) we were, he was always sort of part of it, but just had taken a back seat. Well, your uncle Hector is the face that's on the can. He is the face that's on the can. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, And that, that they did change that at one point to reflect his aging yeah. I think the black mustache became gray exactly <laughs> but it was I mean it was still him and people I think to this day didn't realize you know there's just a new label they didn't realize it was a real person it was a real person yeah interesting because yeah. we see as I say Betty Crocker everyone thinks Betty Crocker is a real person you know? right she's not a real person but <laughs> did a show on that <laughs> um then when did they first start um Putting the spaghetti in the cans with the or the ravioli. I think it was, it was ravioli was one of the biggest. Ravioli sellers, was one right? of the biggest. Yeah. Um, I would that came later. So yeah. the ravioli I would I think came after the war, and I have gone back and found pizza boxes that came out in the fifties. They also had a frozen pizza for a while during the fifties, and they just the, the food line just sort of kept evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, for better or for worse, for one better, might say. Yeah, right. 
But, you know, when they started, could they have ever have predicted, oh, in, you know, now the company's, I guess, it's going to be 87 years old. So could they have predicted in 87 years, it's going to be a billion dollar company, never in a million years. I mean, that was way beyond their dreams. They could have big dreams, but probably not that big, right? Yeah. Interesting. Well, I want to find out more about the family involvement and the products when we come back after a short break. You are listening to I Love the Way by Alan Wilkes. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Posting after the jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Hi, we're back, and we're talking about Italian food in a can, none other than Chef Boyardee. And, you know, Anna, we were um, talking during the break, and and when I mentioned to um, some friends, they wanted to know what my next show was about, and I told them, ooh, it's about Chef Boyardee. It's going to be fun. They go, oh, as a kid, I always loved SpaghettiOs. Well, folks, SpaghettiOs, <laughs> if you remember the can, that was Franco-American and not Chef Boyardee. I'm sure that must happen a lot, right? All the time. And, uh, you know, as you and I were talking before, I think people actually, when they think of Italian food in the can, they th- automatically think Chef Boyardee. Chef Boyardee, of course. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we take it as a compliment because, you know, Chef Boyardee was, you know, the first one. And there's always somebody there to, to copy and and... I guess that's the biggest compliment, right? Indeed. Wants and to do what you're doing. Right. Well, and you, and you said, um, you know, the food, as, as time went on, the food evolved. And, and I said, for better or for worse, and meaning that, you know, processed foods uh, are all over the, the supermarket shelves, uh, the good and the bad. Um, and there's a place for them at times. There's always, you know, a quick, you know, a quick meal. But people, of course, these days, we've broken away from that and trying to eat. Uh, more healthfully and 
and having fresh foods and, and not the processed, ready-made foods. So there's been a, a kind of a pulling away from that, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that, I don't know whether, I'm sure that's affected um, sales in, in many of these lines. Is any of the family still involved? I mean, it's now belongs, the company's now ConAgra. The company is now ConAgra. And uh, no, no one's directly involved with the company except for me occasionally. Like, they do a lot of charity initiatives and and donate incredible amounts of food um, and resources to ending childhood hunger. So if, if it's initiative if it's, if, if it's that type of initiative then I get involved mm-hmm. but um, for the most part everyone sort of took different paths <laughs> well I guess you know <laughs> but the, your forefathers set you up nicely so that you could it allowed you to take mm-hmm. a different path which was very nice um, but you kind of went back into that path recently uh, right. what a couple of years ago you you published a book called delicious memories and in this book there are a lot of the recipes that eventually went into a can right right so I think it would be impossible to grow up in my family and not love good food and, and not have an appreciation for good food. And food is was certainly much bigger than a family business in our family. It was really the thing that connected us and the way that we lived our traditions. I was born in Italy, so it, it's just in the DNA. It's impossible to, to get away from that. And I started teaching a cooking class. I never charged anybody. It was only for fun. And... Because what I had sort of found, like among my friends, is that their basic skill set had been lost. I mean, I grew up in a family where everybody cooks. Even mm-hmm. you know, my my dad is an amazing cook. My mom is amazing, uh, and and everyone just lives in the kitchen together. I mean, that's really the heart of the home. And so I started doing this class, and people would just always ask me about the story of my family and our recipes and. I was teaching a lot of our recipes in the class, and my husband said, why don't you do a book? And I had, it was really something that I had never thought about doing, and I said, you know, I sort of thought it over, and I, I said, okay, you know, you know, if anything, I would love to preserve this history just for my children and my grandchildren, sure. and my dad is, my dad is 87 years old, and I wanted to sort of, you know, preserve these stories before he forgot them all. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it as just a labor of love. If nobody buys the book, I really don't care. I'm just doing it for myself. And when I went, I put together this whole folder and, and you know, wrote some samples from the book and some sample recipes and some photos. And I went around to a few different publishers and there was so much interest in the book because obviously it was such an iconic brand and it's right. just this incredible story. And um, so I, d- I wrote the book and a lot of... Most of the some of the recipes in the book also are just my recipes that I've tweaked and sort of make sense in a modern day life. But a lot of the recipes are germane to Piacenza, which is where I was born, and mm-hmm. which is also where my grandfather was That's born. That's what I was going to ask you: what part of Italy did yeah. um, to become? So we're yeah. talking, yeah. So Piacenza is in the north, in the Emilia Romagna region, where I think we have the best food in Italy. I, I will agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot of things that are very specific to Piacenza, like tortelli, which is. Uh, it's a stuffed pasta, but you really don't find it even in Italy outside of Piacenza. Mm-hmm. Like we make it in a very specific way, and, and then uh, all these recipes that I grew up with that you know are our family favorites in terms of like they're my grandfather's tomato sauce and um, 
a dish from Piacenza, which is called Pizzeria Fazur, which is a pasta and bean dish. Um, you know, there's all different types of pastas. We're not, we don't have a lot of fish because where Piacenza is, we're not close to water. So fish is, you know, food is very regional in Italy. So that's not part of our immediate cuisine there. Um, but it's just a lot of great pasta and vegetable dishes and all they are, of our food. I, I have to say that the, the, I'm sorry to no. put in there, but the book is, the, they are mouthwatering um, recipes and the photographs you know show you that it looks it's very it's home cooking you can tell it's really home cooking it's not some of these books you know that everything looks so gorgeous saying well how could i ever reproduce this dish you know but it looks very much like food in in, you know in someone's home in your italian grandmother's home (laughs) i mean i think really at the heart italian food is not really over complicated food it's just you know it's about starting with some like really fresh ingredients and a good olive oil. That's right. And the best ingredients going to give you the best flavor. Don't overdo that. You know, don't overdo it on sauces. Sauces aren't cooked for days in. No, days out. Yeah, that's what a lot of people don't understand. I think yeah. Italian food is finally having its day too. That people realize this is this is the base of of really fine food. Right. It's the best ingredients. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Guess that was an easy one. <laughs> Okay, so tell me which um, which of the recipes, and I'm sorry, I don't have the book right no, in front no, no. of me here, um, but which recipes were the ones that were, are there some that are authentic, like trademarked recipes, or? Well, they're not, we never went so far as to formally trademark them, but there is the uh, tomato sauce that was mm-hmm. served uh, at all of my, you know, in my Uncle Hector's restaurants, and uh, a lot of recipes for fresh homemade pasta, and then the lasagna recipe, which is really a family favorite and is a little bit different than how you typically find lasagna now in a restaurant because there's no ricotta in it. It's just, it's very thin homemade pasta with it's a bechamel. bechamel. <laughs> and a, I saw, I'm, I'm picturing it right now because I saw yeah. the picture of it. And, and that, you know, was a, that was a favorite, uh-huh. um, a restaurant favorite, you know, and not every day. They would only maybe make it once a week because it was labor intensive and it was mm-hmm. really special, but it was for sure a favorite. And so that was... That's in the book. Um, and it's still actually like all of the recipes in the book are all of my favorites. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to think what other, you know, uh, it's funny because one of the recipe, one of the commercials that I was in with my grandfather, we actually shot in Genova. And w- when my uncle Hector would travel back to Italy and my grandfather, they would always, they would sort of get off the boat there. And the first thing that they would do because they typically traveled by boat, is the first thing that they would do is they would go get a plate of uh, linguine with pesto because the best pesto comes from the Liguria region mm-hmm. in Italy because we consider that the best basil. And, you know, it's, you pr- pretty much only find it in the summer and it's, it has to be very small and tender. And that was one of the first things that they would always do. And in our family, we always make basil in the summertime and then we freeze it. So that recipe is in, is also in the book. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the recipes, even if they weren't specific to the restaurant, they were specific to the way that I was raised, and and all sort of have a family story attached. That's wonderful. Yeah. And that's your mother. You're cooking next to. I see that's in my a mom. Picture. Yeah. So so I mean, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, right? <laughs> She's always there cooking. Uh, wonderful stories. I now if I make this lasagna for mm-hmm. my family, very foodie family and yeah. say, if we're having Chef Boyardee lasagna tonight, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I could hear all kinds of moans and groans until they realize that it's the original recipe. It's, right. I mean, 
as I say, everyone, there's a time and a place for exactly. some of these convenience foods. And now they have the microwavable Chef Boyardee. Right, which is very popular cans. among college students. I'm sure. I'm sure. Stick it, you know, that microwave, and it's just one portion size. Yeah. Um, but um, it's nice to see that they came from the actual recipes, you know, that are in the can and in the in the product come from things that are based on very good food and kind of kind of ruined ravioli in a way for a lot of people i think in a sense not sorry to well, say you know but. what's funny <laughs> is that it's amazing how and i'm and i'm being very serious when i say this is that it's amazing how many people will say to me you know and these are sophisticated people right that eat at the best restaurants they're like you know one of my favorite things to this day is still Chef Boyardee ravioli out of a can. <laughs> it's that it's that sensory memory, memory right, absolutely. right? That brings them back to like being a child or being in college, and it takes them right back there, right? Um, which is really kind of funny. Yeah, it is. Oh, but I I understand it perfectly. I mean, I can I can taste it right. You know, close my eyes and taste it. And yes, I used to give my kids a can of it every now and then because I was in a hurry. I, they grew up just fine. Nothing wrong with that. And I mean, you know, of, of all of you think of all of the um, the junk food that's out there. This you can't call this junk food. I mean, it's no. it's food that's processed, you know, with high heat and, and and what you do to it. I mean, there aren't all these stabilizers and right. and um, you know other ingredients in it. It's the natural foods that you know that were just exposed to high heat to can and, yeah. and preserve and. And they tasted, you know, unfortunately that does alter a taste of a fresh pasta, you know, fresh tomato sauce on a pasta, but it's it was still good food. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were always, and still to this day, are, have a lot of initiatives to lower sodium and like they're, they're very attuned to the fact that it's, it's, you know, food that's made for children and they put out a lot, like ConAgra puts out a lot of recipes that they have different chefs working on where they're, they're saying, well, if you're going to give your kids food out of a can here are also recipes and here you can add fresh tomatoes or lettuce or kidney beans to up the protein content and sort of give them a way um to make it more nutritious for their kids and give them you know options yeah i think that's very important too because that i mean that's the whole battle is teaching people to cook teaching you know and obviously time is a factor Mm -hmm. but um we've raised a, a couple of generations now of people who just don't really step foot in the kitchen and, no, and at cook. All. So hopefully we've turned that around a bit. And you know, it's quite amazing too when you think with with this whole industry that your um, your grandfather and, and uncle started. That I, I mean, pasta, dried pasta, the first dried pasta wasn't even produced in this country until practically the end of the nineteen, like eighteen ninety something, yeah. eighteen ninety two, I think. Um, in Staten Island, as a matter of fact, that there was not even dried pasta here. It was, as you said, Italian food was was unknown, really, until, really, you know, until it became, yeah. there were more restaurants in the, in come the, came the 40s and, and 50s, but yeah, I mean, they were forebears. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny, because I don't, you know, if most people are, I don't know if they're familiar with polenta, which is a, an Italian dish made out of cornmeal, and I remember, because as a kid, I would... When I would go to school, after school, I, did, I also had to go to Italian school. So I would learn about Italian history and culture and geography. And um, you know, I just remember this as a kid. Is One, we always had polenta in the wintertime. I mean, that was something that was really popular in our family. And But it, polenta is really, in Italy, is, was considered like a peasant food because it was basically water and cornmeal. So there wasn't a lot 
in terms of like cost or ingredients. And sometimes when I go to restaurants and I see what they charge for a yeah. plate of polenta, it's just, it's, <laughs> yeah, I start laughing, right? right? Because it's, they took something that was really like the, you know, you can pretend that it's, it's chic and all this, but really, I mean, this is what people like eat in the mountains. <laughs> but if it's done right, and especially delicious. if it's served with a great stew oh, of, yeah. of, of some, you know, wild game, mm, I can't think of a better winter dish. No. That's wonderful. They didn't put that in a can, I noticed. No. <laughs> that didn't make They probably it. thought that was too foreign a concept <laughs> for Americans. And I'm sure it would have been, right? Well, Anna, thank you so much. This is, it's been just a delightful story, and it's making me really hungry. <laughs> and you. I must say, those pizza pizzas I made from the from pizza mix from the Chef Boyardee pizza mix I'm I'm sure I haven't had one for you know X we won't say how many years but I'm sure I wouldn't find it tasting quite the same but it was impressive to me at the time oh it was honestly that the pizza kit was one of my first forays into the kitchen it just happened to have our last last name on it but you know like some kids have an easy bake oven the pizza kit was my favorite thing to make and my mom would you know roll out the dough and and uh, I would use the tomato sauce, and then she would let us put whatever we wanted on top. And I loved the pizzas. Yeah. Hey, listen, so. it introduced me to it too. I mean, you know, that was it was great. And who knows how many budding chefs started out by yeah. making Chef Boyardee pizza? You never know. You never know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I thank really you enjoyed so it. Much. And and I just want to remind people that the, the, if you um, can find you find the book, it's still it's still available. Yeah, yeah it's still only a couple you can years find it on Amazon or right. Barnes and Noble. It's called Delicious Memories by Anna Boyardee. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>